Field very deep again. This ball hit deep to left. It's got a chance. To the track. To the wall. Albert does it again. Albert Pujols has beaten the Cubs back-to-back days. And this crowd is going crazy here at Bush Stadium. His teammates leading that home plate. Wikipedia. 
And in order to, to go where I'm trying to go, I got to step out of my coverage zone a little bit, really push myself, really invest myself into topics that sometimes I'm not that familiar with. And, you know, it's time to go out and chase the story. And my fellow seam heads, I can tell you that that's been the biggest thrill on this run so far. It's, it's learning more and more about this game that I've been watching since I was seven. And this week will be no different as I really stepped out of that comfort zone. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, today's topic is baseball in the Dominican Republic. And let's be honest. All I ever really knew about Dominican baseball was that I love the brand. And while baseball may long, no longer be the national pastime in the United States, it is most certainly still a pan-Caribbean passion. No country has used baseball more to tell their story to the world. The story of perseverance, about people who worked hard cutting through sugarcane, a nation that endured 31 years of Rafael Trujillo's dictatorship and withstood occupation of foreign powers three times. No nation of comparable size has had the singular MLB experience or success, even though they were denied access until, uh, to Major League Baseball until it integrated in 1947. The Dominicans have created a sporting world of their own. Baseball has galvanized and brought those people together, creating a sense of national identity rooted in competition and achievement. In the early 1800s, English colonists would play and teach the Dominicans how to play cricket. But the history of baseball in the DR, it actually begins in Cuba. On October 10th, 1868, Havana sugar mill owner Carlos Manuel de Cespedes and his followers proclaim independence from Spain. And this spawned an, an uprising, a rebellion against the Spanish crown. And it would usher in the Ten-Year War. And this would be the first of three liberation wars Cuba would wage against Spain. But during this 10-year war, Cuban refugees began immigrating in droves to the Dominican Republic. And they brought with them the game of baseball, or pelota. And please, I don't want anyone to be offended by my Spanish. Hopefully, I don't butcher the words here, but I want to keep it authentic, baby. So I don't mean any disrespect. I come at you with total respect. I have respect for your country and your traditions. At the turn of the century, going into the 1900s, baseball was not, it wasn't really big on the island yet. It was a marginal sport. And that was partly due to the mass political turmoil and uncertainty in the country at the time. However, two teams sprang up in 1890. Their names were Ozama and Nuevo Club. On November 7th, 1907, Tigres de Lice was founded in Santo Domingo. Uh, Tigres, of course, being the Tigers. And for the next decade and a half, Lice was such a powerful squad that three rival teams, San Carlos, 
Los Muchachos, and Delco Light combined forces to establish a super team. They would call that team Escogido, or the Chosen One. And the two teams have been rivals ever since. Two other teams were established, Estrellas, Estrella Orientales, or the Stars, that was in 1910, and Sandino in 1921. They would later change their name to Aguias Sabanez in 1937. Dictator Rafael Leonidas Trujillo served as the uh, Republic's president from 1930 to 1938. Let me see here. And again from 1941 to 1952. And during his first term, he oversaw the modernization of the Dominican Republic. And he undertook many public work projects, including baseball Steve. Uh, stadiums. In 1937, he merged Lycee and Escogido into one for the upcoming season. And that new team would be called the Dragones de Cuidad, Trujillo. And it featured, I mean, top shelf Negro Leagues talent and Latin players of the day. Legends like Satchel Page. Yeah, he could make up to like $15,000 a summer to pitch for the club. And $15,000 in 1937 is equivalent to around $293,000 in the 2022 economy. And soon other players like Sam Bankhead, Cool Papa Bell, Josh Gibson, Leroy Matlock, they would join Trujillo's ball team. Opening day, March 28, 1937. Sabanez behind the arm of Negro League Chef Brewer. No hit page, and the Dragonis in a 4-2 game. In July, Cuidad Trujillo won the championship with an 18-13 record. Josh Gibson led the league in average in RBIs with a 4.53 average and 21 ribs. Negro League superstar Martin DeHigo, the uh, Shohei Otani of his day, he dazzled the Dominicans with his Dual threat skill set, smashed four home runs for Sabanez, and his win-loss record of 6-4 and four was second only to Satch's 8-2. After the season, the league collapsed. The players returned home, and Trujillo was ousted, and he would remain dormant for the next 14 years. The modern Dominican League was founded in 1951, and it's called Lightem which is an acronym for La Liga Professional de Baseball de la República Dominicana. The season starts in mid-October, and it runs to the end of December. And it's basically split into three stages. To start, the six teams play in a schedule of 50 games. Then, the top four teams will play another 18 games against each other. Finally, the two teams that are left, they played out in a best-of-nine series. And the winner of that series represents the DR in the Caribbean series against top teams from Mexico, Puerto Rico, Venezuela, and Cuba. There are six teams of lineup. Two teams of Santa Domingo, Tigres del Lice, and Leones del Escogido. 
La Estrella Orientale is from San Pedro de Marcaris. Aguilla Sabanez plays in Santiago. Toros del Este of La, La Romagna. And the Gigantes, the Giants del Sabayo from San Francisco, San Francisco de Macorís. Estadio Sabayo is the league's largest stadium with a seating capacity of 18,077 fans. Baseball players in the Dominican are like fine backward spirits that have been like illegally mashed up and distilled. Beautiful ball players. By the 1930s, baseball had grown into a big money sport in the Dominican. Soon, scouts would begin to scour the country for the talented youth. Basically, a third of all foreign-born Major League Baseball players come from this country, with a population of 10.4 million people. In 2021, there were 98 Dominican home, Dominican-born players in the big leagues. Out of 906 total, that's 11%. Venezuela had the second most foreign-born players with uh, 64, and the Cubans were third at 19. And I'm going to tell you, in the minors, it's not uncommon to see even higher numbers. By my count, 44% of the players on the first two levels of just the Chicago White Sox farm are foreign-born players, which is staggering to me, considering all the resources and coaching and dietary uh, strategies. All these things are afforded to American kids. But it's 44% foreign-born players on the Chicago White Sox. You know, like the first two levels. I, I, I looked at the low A and the high A. There is one Dominican big leaguer, big leaguer for every 63,000 people. Compare that to one big leaguer for every 307,000 people here in the United States. The Dominicans produce Major League Baseball talent at about five times the rate of the United States. Now, the average adult salary in the Dominican Republic is around $5,000 a year. The country itself has a GDP of $64 billion, and baseball brings in about a billion dollars a year to the Dominican Republic. It is estimated that Dominican players earn approximately $400 million in, the, in Major League Baseball. Players in the minors, they earn another $200 million, and a lot of that money does, in fact, make it back to the island. That, and that's why these kids look up to these Dominican players like super, superheroes. Pedro Martinez, while he was pitching for Boston, said 15 years ago, I was sitting under a mango tree scrounging for 20-cent bus fare. He returned home after his career, and he totally rebuilt his old neighborhood. I look at Vladimir Guerrero. He returns home. He becomes this highly successful entrepreneur. And now he's employing scores of people, hundreds of people. And you hear these prodigal uh, native son stories all the time when it comes to that island. All 30 Major League Baseball teams have training and recruitment facilities in the country. 
that brings in thousands and thousands of talented youth. The Dominican Republic has a thriving baseball industry, and it will exist as long as Major League Baseball is a viable league. All these facilities, they need trainers, tutors, coaches, food, equipment, equipment suppliers. The Dominican Republic has become a training ground for much of the region. Venezuelans, Panamanians, Nicaraguans, Mexicans, and Cubans. They all go there to train. And here's the thing. Only 2% of kids who go to these training facilities make a living playing baseball. Many of the boys end up without a uh, proper education after leaving school early to pursue baseball. So what is it that motivates these young boys to take a chance against these crazy odds? Well, they don't just necessarily want it. They need it. And an interesting thing happens when you flip the switch from want to needs. The Dominicans focus on developing talent. Not so much winning games. They want you to throw with everything like your Pedro, swing out of your shoes like your Big Poppy. And that's why in the minors, you see what you see. These, these kids, we call them unpolished gems when they arrive at rookie ball. You see the hard throwers, free swinging players. And they are products of their culture. This is what got them there. It's very rare to see a Dominican, a pro ball, who didn't sign for at least fifty dollars to $100,000, which is potentially life-changing cash when, you know, you make $5,000 a year. They, they've already won just by being there, is what I'm saying. And there's an interesting phenomenon that, that happens in, in the baseball universe. And that is is the existence of baseball hotbeds. And the Dominican Republic is a hotbed. So is Cuba, Venezuela. In the United States, we got Texas, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, SoCal. They are cranking out disproportionately high crop of, uh, you know, this top shelf liquor talent. And certainly factors like population density and year-round climate, there are factors that, that no doubt contribute to these results. But I propose there are other pieces of the equation that most people don't even factor in. I'm talking about, you know, uh, competition and motor learning. And competition, it, it breeds a higher caliber of athlete. As the caliber of player reaches a certain threshold, this creates a positive feedback loop. Better players push everyone else to train. I mean, you got to just to stay on par with your competition. A player who is dominating a lesser geographical region, he cannot afford to take his foot off the gas or the success will be short-lived. For example, this is what I mean. An 84-mile-per-hour pitcher who is undefeated playing in, say, I don't know, Dover, Delaware. He may get fat off of that feasting and leave the table satisfied and then begin to fall off. It's inevitable. 
But that same pitcher, 84 mile per hour, high school kid, he may struggle in Texas just to make the JV team, forcing him to keep pressing and improving himself. Competition breeds competition. And it breeds better players. Motor learning, well, that, motor learning occurs through uh, imitation. In other words, uh, most of us seam heads, we can trace back to when we started having higher levels of throwing, hitting, and other baseball-specific skills. And that's when we began to mimic coaches, teammates, and competition during our development, particularly in our early stages of our development. And once we learn these patterns of body movement, they're, it is then at that point that they are reinforced and for some extent, extent uh, refined through repetition. And my point is this, athletes who are surrounded by higher level athletes and body patterns, they tend to have a better opportunity and chance of developing higher level patterns themselves. And I, I don't just mean body patterns, I mean how you carry yourself. How you prepare. You feed off of one another if you have good teammates who are about these things. Athletes who are surrounded by non-competitive low-level patterns from a young age are at a massive disadvantage to go far in the sport. Child A, let's call him Tony. Grew up in small town USA learning to play catch in the front yard with his pops. And he's only seen the patterns expressed by other athletes in his, you know, highly contained intramural little league. Okay? Child B, let's call him Kenny. He grows up in a minor league locker room. He learns to hit and throw with the lead players. And he observes and he mimics these patterns. Body patterns and preparedness patterns. And he follows them for a decade. It's no mystery who's going to end up with the better patterns. 999 times out of 1,000, it's going to be Kenny. So, this point applies to all sports. For example, long-distance runners from Kenya, sprinters from Jamaica, soccer players from Brazil, hockey players from the Czech Republic. Competition breeds better players and better motor learning breeds better players. The dream of being a major leaguer in the Dominican Republic, it's sustained through a complex system of identifying and developing amateur talent and then signing them to pro contracts. It's crucial to have infrastructure that not only develops a young boy's baseball skills, but the education as well, because the odds are long, 2%. Not every kid can be Pedro or Big Poppy. Make sure these kids are educated and in safe environments near their homes where they can play in safe and organized ways. Baseball is a defining feature of the Dominican Republic's national identity. But those who don't make it big are often exploited by a system that prioritizes money over people. And what happens is these these young kids, it, it, it ignites a feeding frenzy by those seeking to profit from
from juvenile talent and ignite, you know, a power struggle among Dominicans, foreign investors, Major League Baseball. I mean, MLB's craving for talent has spawned a profitable youth market that at times, at times, gives off shady optics of child trafficking, quite honestly. And in my opinion, two Major League Baseball policies make this predatorial environment possible. Number one, Major League Baseball prevents boys from signing contracts until they're 17 years old. This creates an opening for these self-styled trainers known as Buscones. They run around the barrio. They snatch these boys up when they're as young as 13. They're they're there to develop their talents and then pedal them to the Major League Baseball system when they're 17. Boys usually stop going to school when they train with the Buscones. And more than a thousand of these Buscones, they they walk the hoods and they get their hooks into these boys. They can hopefully use at some point as bargaining chips, sellable commodities. And as a reward for his speculative investment, the Buscone makes, you know, like a third of the kid's bonus contract if he signs. Several people operate these academies. They're sometimes backed by U.S. investors and agents. And they basically just look at some of these kids as, a, you know, a future market, future commodity for a future market. These higher-end facilities, they offer comfortable quarters, competent instruction, but many of these are, you know, decrepit accommodations, and there's literally hundreds, sometimes thousands of defenseless boys. And I'm not here to tell you that all these Biscones are terrible. Not all are parasites. Some are good men. They feed, they care for them, they make them better ball players, they create a market for their services, and they drive up signing bonuses. But other Biscones, man, they're nothing more than blood sucking leeches. Some of them steal from their boys. They involve them in fraudulent scandals. They might even administer PEDs. Others falsify birth certificates to lower ages, knowing that ball clubs pay more for younger prospects. And if the kid is discovered participating in this abhorrent behavior, he could lose his bonus and and be banned for a period from signing a contract. So that's one problem. The second problem is it exempts Dominican citizens from the MLB amateur draft. And that means they begin their careers as free agents. Consequently, uh, there's competitive bidding for the services and drive signing bonuses. And it makes these guys very very well sought after. The, The guys on the high end, of course, right? And honestly, Major League Baseball profited immensely from Caribbean ballplayers signing them by the hundreds on the cheap. Juan Marichal signed for $500 in the 50s. Pedro received $6,500 in 1988. But most boys are soon released 
as few make it to the majors, and again, most of these boys quit school at the age of 13. As MLB became an economic powerhouse, Buscones were able to create bidding wars for elite prospects. Signing bonuses soared in the 90s. Some of them went as high as $3 million. Teams began to balk at such sums. Nor did they enjoy, you know, <laughs> being made fools of when uh, steroid-enhanced home runs turn into lazy fly balls or a player lose 10 miles per hour after he stops juicing. <laughs> and quite honestly, some of these players were neither who they claim to be or their posted age. So there's some shady shit. And these type of issues, they spurred MLB to try and police Dominican baseball and restore its profitable dominion. In 2010, baseball began cracking down on corruption. Yada, yada, yada. Drug testing, rigorous background checks, and led teams to avoid millions of dollars in signing bonuses. The Buscones, however, they still rule with impunity. As MLB quickly discovered, I mean, these dudes are just, they're way too entrenched to totally, uh, you know, eliminate. MLB did cap the amount a uh, team can spend on international signings. And the 2022 baseball lockout, it did provide an opening uh, to the international players as part of the MLB amateur draft. Uh, some players, like Fernando Tatis Jr. of the Padres, are adamantly against this, while others like David Ortiz are not opposed, but they'd like to see the MLB really take their time and do this right. I believe that new CBA, it states that 2024 would be the beginning of this experiment, but uh, both sides have been pretty quiet about this development, and I think it's going to be a wait-and-see kind of vibe. It's going to happen, but I think they're really thinking about how can we do it so that everyone gets a little bit of what they want here. While some Dominicans condemn the Buscones for exploiting the kids, uh, many have laid the blame on Major League Baseball's doorsteps, quite honestly. Some MLB employees have been fired for conniving with these Buscones, taking advantage of boys. Some guys like Felipe and Moises Alou, Omar Manaya, Manny Actum, they have proven themselves as managers, GMs, owners, and winner and Major League Baseball. And they've taken ownership of the game down, down there, uh, but they have not attempted to rid the country of Buscones. So just a little bit of what's going on there, how it happens there. And before we get out of here, there is one Dominican player out of all the great Dominicans that we've seen. There is one that we should really talk about here. His name was Osvaldo Jose Pachardo Virgil. Ozzy Virgil Sr. He was born May 17th, 1932 in Monte Cristi, Dominican Republic. He would go on to break the color line for the Detroit Tigers in 1958, and he became the first Dominican in the major leagues. 
11 seasons after Jackie Robinson's integrated the big leagues with the Brooklyn Dodgers. His family moved to the Boogie Down Bronx when he was 13, and he attended DeWitt Clinton High School. Now, he didn't make his high school baseball team, but he did play sailor ball, and he played a little bit down in Puerto Rico. After high school, Virgil joined the United States Marine Corps Reserves. They called him up to active duty, and he played baseball with the Marine Corps team at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Uh, if you remember back for the Roberto Clemente's uh, story, our very first one, he also played at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. When he left the Marines, the New York Giants gave him a contract and they signed him. Virgil did his tour in the minors first, playing in St. Cloud, Minnesota. That was in the Northern League. He then moved on to Danville, North Carolina, in the Piedmont League, where he hit 291. And a little past midseason, he was hitting 309 for Dallas in the Texas League. He led all third basemen in the Texas League with a 975 fielding percentage. And he was named to the All-Star team. He then went on to play winter ball in Puerto Rico. And after spending most of the 1956 season on the farm in Minneapolis, uh, he would hit 278 there with 10 home runs, 73 ribs. Virgil made his Major League Baseball debut with the Giants of September 23rd. He appeared in three games, collecting five hits and 12 at-bats. Not bad. Becoming the first Dominican to make it to the show and establishing a national lineage that reads like a who's who. Before the 1958 season, Virgil was dealt to the Tigers, along with Gail Harris, for infielder Jim Finnegan and twenty-five grand in cash. Virgil had earned a spot on the Tigers roster, and in his Briggs Stadium debut on June 17, 1958, he went 5-for-5. Five during the 1961 season, the Tigers traded Virgil to the Kansas City A's. He would eventually serve brief stints with the Orioles, Pirates, and Giants while shuttling between the majors and the minor leagues. Uh, Virgil retired after the 1968 season. He never appeared in more than 96 games in a season, but he should always be remembered you know, for paving the future to the MLB for his fellow countrymen. He truly is the Jackie Robinson of Dominican ballplayers. In 1968, he became a player coach for the Giants AAA affiliate in Phoenix, Arizona. After that season, Giants manager Clyde King named him coach for the big club. And at that time, he was one of only four black coaches in Major League Baseball, uh, along with Elston Howard of the New York Yankees, Jim Gilliam of the Dodgers, and Luke Easter for the Tribe. There were no black managers, GMs, and very few people of color in Major League front offices. Osvaldo's hiring was a testament to his high esteem that the Giants had of him, his tutoring of prospects and young players, and he actually helped the Giants take the NLS crown in 1971. During subsequent decades, he led a nomadic kind of baseball existence, uh, as a major league coach, scout, and winter league manager, 
He won the pennant managing Aguias in the Dominican League during 1971 and 72, as well as Caracas in the Venezuela League. He also coached for the Padres, Expos, and Mariners. Virgil's son, Ozzy Jr., he played in the major league uh, late major leagues from 1988 to 1990, most prominently with the Phillies. And in 2004, his grandson, Jose, was selected by the St. Louis Cardinals in the 18th round of the 2008 MLB Amateur Draft out of Oklahoma University. Ozzy Virgil's final stat line, nine years of Major League Baseball service. He played for the Giants, Tigers, Pirates, Orioles, and Royals. 324 games, 798 plate appearances, 75 runs, 174 hits, 19 doubles, 7 triples, 14 home runs, 73 RBIs. He had a 231, 331, 594 slash, and a 59 OPS+. And though Ozzy never became a superstar, his uh, Dominican legacy, it should never be forgotten. Uh, and it isn't by his countrymen and, and women. The lineage of all those beautiful ball players: Pujols, Manny, Pedro, Vlad, both of them, Marichal, Moises, Poppy, to today's kings, Tatis, Devers, Soto. All of them made possible by this man right here, Ozzy Virgil Sr. And I think I'm going to wrap it up right there. I hope you enjoyed this week's show as we will be traveling throughout the world all summer long. I'm going to take a look at different baseball cultures around the globe. Countries like the Netherlands, Japan, Venezuela, Cuba, and more. So strap in. That's going to go down, you know, all during the summer. I'm going to take a look at some of these countries. Countries and I got to be honest, I, I'm kind of adopted Estrellas Orientales as my team, and I'm so ready to hang out in San Marcos. You know, I would love to do it, man. Bucket list: go down there, sip on some mamawana, munch on some tostones. Yeah, man, that sounds like a day to me. I would love to do it. I want to thank Abel Rosario Jr. for helping me out all week with pronunciations. And questions. I certainly appreciate you, brother. And uh, to the rest of you, don't forget to subscribe, follow, rate, and preview as you see fit. You can find us on Twitter at backwards underscore K underscore podcast or on Facebook and YouTube at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network group pages. Now, I'm going to summon my uh, summon my inner Bob Ryan, if any of you are familiar with Entourage. And I want to ask you a question. If I were to tell you that I know a true story about three former major leaguers whose Little League traveling manager used to rob banks to finance the team, would you be interested in hearing that story? Of course you would. But hey, that's another story for another pod. And it's true. The Mutt and Jeff Bandits. You're not going to believe this story at all. But like I said, that's another story for another pod. And look, another story in the archives, and the train rolls on. Parents, if you see your kids sitting on the couch looking bored, by all means, take him or her outside. 
and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless and good night.